Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be no to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Chantelle Taylor is a veteran of the British military. She's renowned for being the first British female soldier to kill an enemy combatant in close quarters. She's also author of the best-selling memoir, Battle Worn. I spoke over Skype with Chantelle about her life in uniform. Chantelle, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you going? Yeah, not so bad. As we just sort of alluded to, I'm still recovering from the weekend, but Tuesday now, so there's no excuse. (laughs) Chantelle, let's go right back. Uh, Tell me a bit about your childhood. You know, I was the youngest of five, so I had quite one of those sort of, I wouldn't say as sort of idyllic as the Griswolds, but we used to do quite a lot together because our ages are very similar. So you had like my my oldest brother, then number two, and then they went from two to four because my parents had twins. And then me, and we were all like, seemed to be, well, like to put it into context, they had five kids by the time they were 25. Wow. So, yeah. So they must have then got a TV. I don't know what happened. But um, yeah, so that, I think that's just uh, back then it was kind of okay to, or it was normal to have bigger families. And mum's mum's Irish, so maybe that's something to do with it as well. But um, yeah, my childhood childhood was kind of, I had grew up with three brothers and a sister, so, yeah, the usual stuff, you know, getting beaten up by them, but no, not in a sort of way. Nothing was ever broken. I used to do, I used to write, strangely enough, and that, that stopped when I got into the military. But I used to write like weird little poems and stuff just about, I was quite a, quite a deep kid. I used to do, um, yeah, the poems that I used to write were about like current affairs, which was quite strange. I was always very much like into into what was on the news. And I don't know, maybe that's, my parents were, used to watch a lot of the news and, and stuff like that. So I, I think... I used to get like quite into it, and um, and then I got into having an opinion pretty early. When you were growing up, you would have um, also been heavily influenced, I imagine, by stories of your grandfather's service in the Korean War. He was in the Royal Marines, and he was part of because um, not not many of ours went to Korea, so he was part of this sort of old and bold that were coming out of the Second World War, and then they made up this unit that went out um, to Korea. But most of my other uncles that they served within the, some sort of capacity within the Navy. But yeah, I did. I, it was almost one of those things because he he never really used to speak about um, Korea much. And I, don't, I don't think many people did. And it wasn't really that well. I wouldn't say documented, but it was one of those. It was the, a forgotten war in? Yeah, it was. You know, and it, which is really sad because that was a you know the stuff that went on there was was extremely intense. And um, for for any war to be forgotten is a, is really really quite sad. And. But it, it just seems to happen, doesn't it? Like you have, you know, for us, the Falklands War, Northern Ireland, you know, we, we were there for 30 years and, you know, people all over the world don't agree with certain things there. It's, it's still, when it's on your doorstep and it's affecting you, it's still, you know, it's still very much as, as a military, that's 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 our interest at that time. Well, I find that sad that your um, grandfather didn't uh, share that many stories with you. I mean, he was a Royal Marine commando, so he would have seen stuff. And I think they teamed up with the US Marines at one point. Yeah, they did. Yeah. But he was very, you know, my, my dad says to me, because I, I don't really remember too much of my grandfather when I was young. And I don't know. I don't know why. But my dad says I'm very similar to him. And we stand the same. And we kind of that doesn't mean I sound like a man. <laughs> it just means we stand very like upright and my um, personality is very similar to his. Like very, I, I get in trouble sometimes for having like the, the wrong tone that like people say. It's not what you say; it's the way you say it. And he was very similar. And I think things like that, having not spent that much time with him, you, those things are handed um, down just by nature, um, the forces of nature, if you like. Yeah. And so, so even though I didn't spend hours and hours sat with my grandfather, I still picked up traits. It's, it's, I mean, it's brilliant. I'm really pleased that I did. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. But then since you didn't have um, that strong uh, military in the back of your mind kind of presence when you were growing up, you didn't join the military straight away, did you? No. No, I um, 
I experienced the 90s first. I don't know if that was a good <laughs> or a bad thing. <laughs> but yeah, I'd... Um, I went in. I was kind of. I was. I was. I want to say I was enjoying myself, but I'm kind of glad that I got through. I survived the 90s because it was a bit in the UK. It was a bit. It got a bit naughty at times, and there was you know the inclusion of hard partying and and along like you know the things that come along with that are um, violence. You know, so it was a bit. It was a bit rough in the UK then, but I survived it. And then yeah, then I signed up. So I kind of. I think the military saved me in some ways because I was. I, I was brought up on a council estate. And I was, I was sort of promised myself I wasn't going to be um, a, a kid pushing a kid, you know, i.e. like a, a child having a child type thing, because that was happening as well, you, you know, having a lot of young... Young mothers and... Yeah, and it was, I just thought, that's not going to be me. Were you ever like a scrappy kind of kid, as in you're getting into... Yeah, I was really bad, yeah. <laughs> And because uh, I think we used to we used to sort of roam in, in gangs, and not the gangs that you see today, like where it gets a bit. You know, the, the fights were always kind of just like physical fights, as as you would you turn up, and there'd, there'd be some sort of sort of gang fighting. But it didn't get to the point where you know people were getting acid thrown in their faces, and and the way that. So when I say that, I say it quite lightly because generally people came away a little bit battered and bruised. But I'd, I'd like to say it was a bit more innocent. I remember still having bombed out churches from the war. So you had sort of these areas in where I lived that you had um, remnants of World War Two, which is crazy, isn't it? To think still in the 90s, you had these bombed out areas. So they were usually the meeting, <laughs> the meeting grounds for these. Uh... And because I was one of the younger ones, I was always kind of, I think I was always quite scared. So I was always, I had older brothers, so I was always looked after. But then it got to a point where I had to kind of like learn to look after myself. So yeah, I guess it's fair to say I became a bit scrappy. <laughs> Rebel child. Yeah. But then what inspires the decision to join the military? Right, so my brother, he joined the infantry. He then obviously started to go away a lot. Which number brother is this in the chain? So he's number three. So he's the youngest boy. So he's he's like the closest to my age. We used to, we used to I mean, we still fight now, like we're 10. People, people laugh, actually, because we're, we're, like, if we're in company, then we'll, we'll just have like a, an argument, but it will literally be like we're back being kids again. Because like I said, we're, we're all really quite close in, in age-wise, so we're all quite feisty. I don't think siblings ever grow up. They just get older. Yeah, exactly. We're still... We're still I'm trying to think of the last, the last time we got physical. <laughs> yeah, so he, he was going away, and I, I remember thinking... I thought it was cool that he was going away, but I, I hadn't sort of got my head around that I was going to join. And then... I had I did a little bit of I think because our our army careers offices used to be quite um, you could get to them you know you could walk past and you could see the stuff in the window and things like that and I just remember looking at it one day and just I don't even know what I thought I didn't even know what I wanted to be I didn't sort of go in there thinking I, I wanted I was I wasn't a cadet and then one day I said it I said right I'm going to join the army and I said it purely out of I wouldn't even say something to say but I just said it and then because I'd said it I had to do it it was one of those sorts of things. Because I, I could, I couldn't face the embarrassment of saying, "Oh, you." And this is this sounds really pathetic when I'm talking, saying it out loud. But at that age, I couldn't sort of handle the the thing of not doing something that I said I was going to do. Well, that stubborn pride, um, I think, served you very well in the end. Yeah, well, probably. I don't know. In some cases, it has. Well, in the case in the case of it um, steering you to actually commit to joining up, it certainly did. Yeah. When you're looking at the list of options, what were the list of options like for you as a young woman in the 90s and what steers you towards choosing a medic right so the ones that i stuck because i didn't really understand what they were and this this is where i say about do your research <laughs> all i saw was were words you know so you've seen that i seen a logistics driver there was an art, an artillery option and I, I can't for the life of me think of what it was i don't it clearly wasn't the forward you know you, women can be forward observation officers now but that wasn't there and there was the the old RMP, the military police. Clearly, I wasn't going to go down that line. And then there, there was combat medic. And again, this is a really simple. There's a really simple reason why I joined, and it was the only. It was the only role in the line that had the word combat in it. So I, and I thought it sounded cool. That's a great informed decision right there. <laughs> do you see? Do you see how that sort of now that I insist on having an informed. <laughs> but it's uh, it's significant because. The, we'll get to it when you're actually being deployed, but it's a line from your book, which we'll also come back to, but you say the line, we are soldiers who carry medical packs, not medics who carry weapons. And it seems, as I've I read that, I thought, well, that seems very obvious, but it was just such an effective description of, no, you're not um, you know, someone waiting at the back. You are in the thick of it with everyone, which we'll get into specific stories, but you were really 
signing up for the heaviest stuff you could have possibly signed up for, I imagine, at that time. Yeah, and and even and the, and the strange thing about that is, is that for the for them for the roles that or the the tours that I I went on, you know, many years later, people's sort of perception of a medic was very much as you just described, you know, Zell, well, you know, that I would just stay in Camp Bastion or you were just there doing, you weren't really anywhere near the front. And I thought, well, actually, if you think about the name of the the role itself, is called, called a combat medic. You know, that kind of to me explains exactly what that that role is you know you don't the, the words are, are, are there to see because I remember when people were sort of surprised at the stuff that I ended up being involved in not you know on the front line and stuff that I thought well what? I don't know why you're surprised because I'm, I wasn't surprised. Now you expected to find yourself in the line of fire? Yeah if we were in that if we were in that um, position so at the time of joining we weren't really going anywhere you know Northern Ireland was still that was sort of um, filtering off um, and my first deployment was Kosovo so and again it wasn't you know, the first taste of proper combat would come much, much later. But and and that was my point. So back then, the role of a medic was very different because we were kind of, you know, painting boxes. And I, I'll tell a story, and it still grosses me out. So bear with me. It's not. I don't like using these sort of words, but it was funny. I remember I was sort of going through our, our kit checklist for our boxes, our med section, um, kind of boxes. And to this day, I never understand that we had. On our equipment checklist, we had a box of twenty-five vaginal speculums. I don't even like that word. Twenty-five. Yeah, so you can you can see how far we've come. <laughs> As in, I, I just for the life of me, I thought, well, hang on, what war has ever said that you need? Why have you got these? And and we had them. They were on our checklist, and there they they were there they would go in our little sort of cages with all of our kit. And like I said, still to this day, I can't I can't imagine the war that they were ever used. You know. Uh, tell me about your training and how you found that. Well, I, I'm not too sure that I thought I would really survive it because I'd gone from being. I wasn't an unruly kid in the household. I, you know, when my parents told me to be quiet, we we were quite well disciplined in that respect. Oh, so you could follow orders. That's useful. Yeah, I could follow orders. But then when I went into this thing, you know, every sort of UK or barracks in the UK is miserable. It's cold. I was, you know, I was away from home and I was just like, oh, this, you know, this is shit. And I remember thinking, I didn't think that I'd survive. I don't mean survive as in the pain and stuff I just thought I don't I don't know if I'm gonna like this because a lot of the people that were there were super keen you know they'd been cadets and I was just like oh this is, and I'd come from a very different you know I didn't I'd been enjoying myself and so I'd and I'd worked I'd worked since I'd left school so I was like well I don't know if this is really going to be for me so I just I I kind of again out of out of sort of pride and sort of blind um because I couldn't really face like going home having failed I guess I just sort of stuck out. I, I won't say that I was a super soldier or anything like that. I just kind of did my best to get through it and, and wake up every day. Because we, we were in a platoon, of a mixed platoon. So there, there were men and women in my platoon, which is a good thing. You know, we're all going to be medics. So, we're all, you know, you kind of have to get used to being around guys. Which you were plenty used to from your childhood anyway. Yeah, yeah, I was. I, and, and, and quite comfortable, really. I, like the guys, we... Where we had these sort of platoon houses, um, all the medics were on the bottom floor, and then above us you had all the you had paratroopers were being trained. So we tended to get beasted by the, the the PTIs, the core PTIs and stuff that would go into the army training facility would sort of beast everybody. They would just you would go down to the PT school and get and I'd, yeah, people used to take quite a lot of pleasure in beasting the medics, I guess, getting their hands on some. <laughs> But that's okay, you know. That's that's what it's all about, isn't it? And then l- later on in my career, I would then go back as an instructor. Anyway, you know, I'd serve two and a half years um, training recruits, so I got payback. It was good fun, actually. I must say that was good. Just before you um, undertake your first deployment to Kosovo, did you get a chance to go and home in uniform or uh, show your grandfather? Was he proud? Before I deployed, I see my grandfather at a wedding, and it's, it's quite a sad story actually. So he was because he kept saying to um, my mum, you know, who and I, I look a bit like him. In that, as I say, when we sort of st- when we stood together, he kept saying, "Who does she look like?" And I don't know what it was. Almost like it was quite a sweet thing to say because my grandfather he was, you know, quite a tall, and, and he always stood extremely proudly. You know, he had, always wore his marine blazer and things like that. And he was, yeah, he was extremely proud, and he. I remember I was in uh, Kosovo on, on one of my early deployments and I received a letter and he'd give me little tips on trust no one, you know, never turn your back on the enemy. And it was all, it was really quite, quite funny because at, at that time, just as a, a lowly medic, you, you just I used to just think, oh, there he goes. You know, it's almost like that scenario of I'll never fight in a war that he fought in. But I did sort of smile at and thought that's coming from an old sort of war dog. 
I'm never going to see that sort of stuff. And so I smiled in that way of, you know, thanks, granddad, but that's not going to be, I'm not going to be in Korea anytime soon. And um, and he died when I was in Kosovo. So that was, um, yeah, I, I guess he never, well, uh, maybe if, if there's something happening there, if there's some sort of afterlife, maybe he did get to see me in, in a, a place that um, wasn't dissimilar to where he found himself. And I guess I came home. So I'm a great believer in that the, you do get some elements of people looking after you. And maybe that's just from a comfort perspective. You know, the same, same with my brother is that I've, I've been in some really, really hairy situations and managed to, managed to always get home. How did you find Kosovo? Cold. Kosovo was my first look at how, you know, when people say about, you know, um, Russians and, and the Eastern Bloc are hard people. And you can see why. The living's quite, um, it's all very... You kind of like in the middle of nowhere, and you and it's dark. And so it's a strange place. But Kosovo was a bit, a bit of an eye, eye opener for me because it was the first time I'd see um, casualties in that sort of setting from you know from from either serious RTAs or or from wounds inflicted by by weapons. And then uh, you know the the sort of a little bit of an introduction of how shit the world can be. You know when when you. you you're helping to sort sort out the mass graves and stuff where people have been, you know, murdered on mass. That was that was a bit of an eye opener. So that was kind of an uh, it was a, an introduction that I probably wouldn't see the same anywhere else as I as I saw in Kosovo because every every theatre of operations is very different. But you take something from every one. You know, you, you couldn't I couldn't compare that with Iraq, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone. It, it's a different place. But it has, and you remember something from all of these theatres. So the one thing that I really took away from Kosovo was their bread, you know, the, the the smell of the bread in the morning. Everywhere you went, you could smell the kind of, it was a distinctive um, distinctive smell. Yeah, I, that was a tour that was, it was like, a, I guess my first, oh, here's another thing that was quite funny about Costa. It was my first time of really hating stagging on, you know, being stood, I remember being sort of stood on a chicane and just becoming very aware that you're, you're the sort of the last line of defence for the entire sort of medical squadron. And just being stood there and hating it, you know, cold. And but still, in you know, in my head, thinking you you still have to stay switched on because these are our vulnerable points. But again, with with no experience of proper war, it's just it's just you're almost like ticking these boxes in your head to think. But I do remember being taking that quite seriously because I've been the sort of little the gimp that I am. I did take that quite seriously, and and then later in life, I I'd remember sort of. Um, if people didn't take it quite as serious as seriously as I did, I'd be pissed off. But then I was also, I was also, I wasn't like, um, you know, I was in trouble in the army sometimes, like everyone else. But I still had this, I don't know, this sort of soldiering. Um, I took it quite seriously. And your next deployment is Africa. You mentioned Sierra Leone. Well, you also encounter some child combatants there as well. Yeah, and that, and that was that was quite hard to deal with because we had to then um, our, our role was to basically allow rebels to hand themselves in and to then offer them um, a different set of skills. So whether that was carpentry and stuff. So that my point coming is that um, you then had to listen to the stuff that they'd done. And some of the stories were just you know, kids being made to kill their entire family. And not just kids, you know, th- th- that's the thing. It's, it's, it's terrible for kids to have to do that, but it's terrible for anyone to have to do that. But, you know, men watching their wives being raped, their daughters... You know, was, I think Sierra Leone um, sort of really prepared me for the the rest of the the, sh- the shit that I might see because it was it was quite hard going, but I really felt like um, I made a difference and we made a difference as a team. Well, the shit changes for you when nine eleven yeah. happens. Where were you that day? Now this is cra- this is crazy town because we were in deep in the jungle at this point. I think we were up in the sort of Kenema, quite close to where the diamond mines and stuff are. So and we're in the, this strange little um, village. Well, it wasn't strange to look at you. It was like a you know what you see on on the films like Blood Diamond. Yeah. So picture that we're we're sat in a village like that, and and we're just going about doing our admin. People are you know eating, and we we listen to the BBC um, World Service, and it is it's almost like going back in time. You know, you've got the radio on, and the, the, there's like I think how many of us we had our force protection, which was about fifteen, and they were all Royal Marine commandos, and then we had a, our team was. I'd like to say six, the six of us. I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. Yeah, so we and so we just all sat sat around having our brews, doing our normal admin, preparing for the day's work, and then then it started to come across the radio, and I, it's, it's, it's really really hard to explain how weird that was. It was almost like, um, well, I'm speechless now thinking about it. 
you couldn't comprehend what was happening and we're listening to this unfold on the radio. It was the strangest, yeah, a real surreal moment in my life. When did you first get to see actual images or footage of it then? So a week later, we all sort of everyone raced into what what you call the chow hall and then just see, and obviously, but if you think about it, a week later, so much, so much more was happening. Yeah, and that, and that was a really a, a strange moment again. And then it, everyone knew that the, you know the world was sort of changing. But again, for for me personally, it wasn't something that I thought because of the the role of of women at that time. You know, I don't mind talking quite candidly about it. I kind of knew I'd deploy, but again, I didn't really think I didn't know how and and how that would sort of unfold. Because it was still very much, we were still very much in the, you know, even as even as medics, and this isn't just women, but we were still very, we didn't really come into our own until Iraq and Afghanistan. Did you have any specific hopes, though, for a deployment or what you might be get to do? Or? Oh, God, yeah, I was always, and this is another, another story, actually, I don't think I covered in the book, is in between that time, so in between Sierra Leone and Iraq, we were stood to to deploy to, in fact, obviously another significant thing happened, but I'll, and I'll, I'll come on to that because it sort of ties in. Obviously, then my, my brother was killed. Yeah. Um, I lost Dave, and then I was posted down to what I thought was like one of the, you know, not not a great unit because I need I needed to be closer to home. So I didn't, I went on sort of five weeks compassionate leave. Then I came back and went to this unit. And I kind of, I, I, you know, I don't mind admitting that, you know, I drank quite a lot for a year drank too much for a year you know I was just sort of trying to escape and you do the completely normal behavior but it was behavior that had to stop and then and I again I still managed to soldier but I knew that I wasn't you know firing on all cylinders and stuff and then a, a job came in that was to, to deploy to the Congo um, the DRC and it was um, basically to deploy to to help um, do a recce for a landing strip for RSF guys to deploy. And I thought, I need to get on that. And, you know, I needed, at that point, I needed to sort of deploy anywhere. I didn't care where it was. I needed to get away. And it's quite funny when you think about me as a kid, always sort of escaping things. So now I was having to escape my brother's death, which was quite a, I can only talk about it like this now because it's so so long ago. But um, so that was a really interesting time because although I was a, a mess, I wanted to deploy. So I was picked for the team, which I was really happy about because no one wants to be the one left at home. And it was a, like a big deal. So we had a, a medical section, senior medical officer and our little crew. So then we're on the, um, all, all our kits packed, good to go. We get to Germany's, pick up the engineer squadron, do it, and then we're all going to fly to the Congo. So we debus from the Herc in, in Germany. And then my name gets called out. It's Lance Corporal Taylor. So I walk to the desk and they say, oh, um, you're not going to be taking any further part in this flight. So I was like, how so? You know, well, not, I didn't say it quite as politely as that. I can imagine it was more colourful. I was broke. I was, you know, I was actually, it broke me because I was being told that I wasn't deploying. No one would say why. Clearly, I was the only female there. And no one would say why. They just said, you're no longer deploying on this. um..." And I, I, it broke me because I was like, I can't, I can't believe. And it was, and this is how crazy again this sounds. It was almost like that fear of missing out. I didn't want people going without me. And, And obviously, I was escaping the, and I needed to go. So so that was another, I mean, it was a strange experience. So I got back to, to camp and I went into my sergeant major's office and I you know, said, I can't, I can't sort of believe this is happening, blah, blah, blah. So you'd been messing around with the Congo and you get the Iraq deployment. How do you feel about your potential role going there? So when that came about, we'd, um, we'd done our normal um, pre, I'd say pre-deployment, we were in the training cycle. So we'd been to Canada training in the on the prairie you know getting our sort of med sectionals um is is sort of an exercise that we do in the training cycle and then when a rat came in it was almost like uh everyone was pretty you know people were quite excited by the prospect of going and i don't know what what sort of listeners will make of that but you know when you when you join the military and you go through these different cycles of we'd already started to deploy in different ways you know the, Brit- the british military were involved in rwanda you guys were doing east timor do you see what i'm saying so we'd, we'd all been in this sort of cycle of I'd like to call it, you know, these deployments were important, but like for me personally, they weren't war fighting. They weren't. Yeah, you've been training for so long, you finally want to utilize these skills. Yeah, naively so, you know, because it may be in a naive way, because it's not until you actually get there, appreciate a real war and, and, and learn to respect it, that you realize that, yeah, you, you still want to be there, but it, you feel very differently. It's not this sort of young, like foolish attitude of, hey i'm off to iraq and then sort of treating it quite nonchalantly when actually it's a a serious business 
But how's your psyche at this point then? Because you've had the shock of your brother. He's died in a civilian context. I mean, you're, you know, you've been not in a big war in that sense, but you've been on military deployments and seen some heinous atrocities and you're desensitizing yourself to some of that. And then you get this complete left field shock close to home yeah. and you've been messed around with this deployment you didn't get and now you're getting to go. Is it the distraction you need or are you feeling better yeah. by the stage? Or? Yes, it's, it's, it's exactly. And and that's, I mean, I, that could have potentially been quite dangerous as well because I knew, you know, with, with things that were going on, you know, my, my head probably wasn't in the in the best place it could be. And and in some ways, looking back, you know, my desperation of needing to get out there was, and I, I still, again, was trying to escape. And I, and I wasn't really giving the deployment the sort of respect it deserved. And, you know, but then having said that, you know, I then go out there and, you know, performed like to my, the best of my ability. And if anything, that Iraq tour had, had given me the sort of drying out that I needed. I mean, and this is the the strange thing about these deployments is you don't, you know, we go out there and people think, oh, you just deployed to Iraq, but people are carrying that the weight of the whatever's going on in their life at that moment. Although you're soldiers, you're still a person. You still have things. People still have mortgages to think about. And I know this sounds crazy, but that's just that's just normal life because nothing sort of stops. And and when you're on deployment, yeah, you you do have that that escaping at that moment in time, but you still have to come home and deal with what, what's going on at home. And that, again, that's maybe where a lot of people can, can fall by the wayside or struggle. Well, let's jump ahead to your first deployment to Afghanistan. Right. So I was in the hospital for that one. And I just left, I just left, I did two and a half years at a, a training establishment. So I'd been at training recruits. So my soldiering skills at, at that point were, were extremely high because you go, I had to go and do my um, skill at arms, which is your weapons instructor down at infantry tra- at the infantry training centre in, in the Brecon Beacons. I'd also become a chemical, biological, radiological and nuclear warfare instructor. That was an interesting course. And when you train recruits, you have to make sure that your, your kit and equipment is absolutely you know squared away, your soldiering ability is squared away, your map reading, all, all those things that, like I said, when I was a recruit, I then, you know, my skills were at an extremely high level. And I, I got promoted from there. So slowly but surely, I was going through the ranks and I left there a sergeant. So when I went on my first deployment, I was a sergeant. Now, on that first deployment, this was in 06 into Helmand. It was our first deployment into Helmand. I was with, it was three para battle group and, you know, everyone deployed as normal, you know, the sort of professional way that they would deploy. But I'm not too sure that everyone knew that what was, was to come would come. Well, you're all finding your fate there together. Yeah, because it was, it was like a new, I mean, it was, it was more of a, a peacekeeping, if you like. It was more to go and protect. No one thought what happened that year would happen. You know, they thought we'd go in, we'd protect a few people and then we'd come home. And then, you know, some 10, 10 15 years later, guys are still coming home draped in, in the flag. So that, that was, I think, a shock to everybody, Afghanistan. You know, my, my role there was very much a supportive role in the hospital. I was running one of the senior NCOs running the admin cell. And again, it was it was my first look at casualties coming in from the battlefield, like proper casualties, and dealing with um, guys, dealing with COs that, were, that had lost men. And that was... Again, I, I won't, it was nowhere near as kinetic for me as, any, as the next tour, but it was definitely emotionally quite tough. Because you weren't part of the action, you were just seeing the, the after action. It was actually quite hard to deal with because we had, um, I'd, I'd like to say, you know, not long into that tour, we had uh, two SF guys were killed and then their whole team came back in and you could clearly see that they'd been through the mill. And then, you know, and I'm handing them out bottles of water and then try, trying to explain when they can go, you know, where their guys have gone as in at what part of the hospital and you know and we'd lost guys so that was a you know quite an, quite an emotional emotional tour and then to add to that my fiance at the time and we were we were together from home not from through the military he was out on the ground in sangin you know in the sort of during the worst stage of the fighting so sort of dealing with that and you know all the other stuff going on and dealing with these these guys coming in it was it was quite harrowing are you chomping at the bit to be in a more active, out in the field kind of role at this yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Maybe for what what was to come, I needed that the year that I had when I when we got back because when when that tour had finished, I then went on a few other courses that I had no business being on. You know, I became I was an urban operations advisor, so I'd gone and done all my fibula training, and it was it was more it wasn't to learn to fight; it was more to learn how to get casualties out. And as, especially as a um, a senior NCO in that position, you're not just you're not just you're no longer just a medic. You're you're 
a med commander. So you have to, you're in command of medics. And yet then you're the, say the company commander's um, advisor on the ground is how, if it's safe to get casualties out and, you know, all those other decisions that you make it again at a, a higher level. And so when I went back to Afghanistan the second time, I'd, I was extremely well qualified. You know, I, I didn't go in there blind. I was, I was ready for whatever was coming. Because again, I had that first tour of Afghanistan, I'd, I'd seen some of the realities of war, the, the other end, maybe not at the sharp end, but I'd seen what, what was coming through the door and, and the reality of um, where, you know, where my place was and how important it was that I needed to get those decisions right. Let's jump to your second tour in Afghanistan in 2008. Where are you operating in the country? Right, so I was pushed out um, as the section like med commander down to Lashkar region. So we're in Helmand still. I won't say a great deal was happening. It was relatively quiet. And the, and the interesting thing is we had a we had a film crew with us that tour, and they were almost um, and the, it's, it was days after they left, it all kicked off. <laughs> and in some ways, I'm glad about that because. I don't know. I do. I think sometimes, you know, it's good to document things, but those times are, I don't know, it's, it's, not, it's not a bad thing that they weren't there with the stuff that I think they, they, they can add pressure to commanders on the ground. And I think maybe um, we've got we've got into that sort of phase where we want, to, you know, people don't need to see that because I think people at home become desensitized to war and then it's almost not such a big deal when it is a big deal. You were deployed with quite a lot of jocks. I'm sure you got plenty of funny stories out of that. Yeah, they were. Yeah, and, and that's and like my mum's Irish. She's from the south, but she's she's got a, a really posh um, Scottish accent because she was then spent you know most of her adulthood in uh, Scotland. So yeah, I I got the I know um, Scots people really well, and I get and I get the humour. So yeah, we had a hilarious at times with them. And the interesting thing is, and I don't know whether it's fate, but so we had three guys in the company that were also recruits when I was at as a training instructor, and one of them was in my platoon. So it just goes to show you how, like, by this strange um, twist of fate, I was now supporting them as a medic, having been like a full corporal instructor when they were private soldiers. And I remember them when they were probably at their, when they were these these little oiks, as I call them, you know, they were these little wretches, 16 years old, you know, (laughs) horrible. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so there there, there we were out on um, patrol together. Help me paint a picture of a day in the life of Sergeant Chantel Taylor. Walk me through an ordinary day you would have had there. So there are two types of days. So the one, the one that was in um, when, when we were in the main operating base, which is the same. In, in our place, we had uh, Brigade HQ. So you had the brigade commander and all of the desk officers. So there would be, you know, you'd, you'd get up, do some sort of PT, get showered, go eat breakfast, um, straight into the the med center, which is like um, we had a med center plus because we would take local national casualties as a way of um, dispersing them and, and and not creating backlog in Bastion. And then we could then send them off to Bost Hospital, which was um, not far from our location. And then, as boring as it sounds, you do your daily sick sick call, sick parade. And again, I, I became quite rigid with that. As if people didn't come in on time, you know, just because you're on ops, don't sort of you do keep a bit of a grip on discipline. And and it's not the and funnily enough, it's not the guys that are out on the ground that lack discipline. It's just it's the it's what I call you know people that don't really need to be missing timings. You know, do you know, does that make sense? It'll be the people that just can't be bothered and that and they've not been out on the ground. It's like well, so why you know why do you feel that it's, it's okay for you to come in at whatever time you like and I'll be stood here waiting. You know, so anyway, so that's my I was still a bit rigid. And then again, life in that in that sort of main operating base, I'd. Our desk officer um, was away, so I had to man the um, brigade desk, which was a big deal for, for a sergeant because it's normally manned by a major. And it would just obviously be my luck that uh, we had a mass casualty incident involving local nationals. And then it, then I learned a, a sharp sort of lesson in at the strategic level of how to learn or to learn how to deploy assets, you know, whether they be CASBIRDs. You know, we know that if a CASBIRD goes out, it's going out with Apaches and it's, it's, it's having the sort of the confidence to make the decision and the right decision to get casualties off the ground without you know putting too many people in danger because th- these are you know these sort of assets are worth a lot of money and and as, as sad as this sounds that's that's important if you don't have many of them you know if you, if you don't if we don't have like a an endless number of chinook um helicopters you can't just sort of deploy things willy-nilly so that was a testing day but again not not quite as exciting as the, the sort of my normal day in nadi ali so so i guess we had a few incidences occur. Like I had um, junior medics under me that would go out and do the patrols with the guys because that's their role. And again, it's remembering your role. So my role is a med commander now. 
on foot patrol with the guys because you've got that's that's what the rank structure is for and it's not to say I didn't want to but it's just again did you feel a bit robbed though because you'd been in the hospital yeah, the previous two yeah 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 I felt really robbed but it's all right because I wasn't robbed as as was sort of later revealed but I did because I, I, I felt like I, I felt like I'd missed my although my, my junior medic days were in places like Sierra Leone where I'd learned my craft of look, looking after guys looking after myself on the ground but they weren't kinetic so it wasn't a kinetic patrol, even though it was, it was still, it could have been, could have turned kinetic really quickly. But so now here, so here I was, the med commander, and we had a few major incidences. And then an incident came in where the senior um, medic, who was a full screw for the, the fighting company, he was injured. So I was like, right, okay. And I wasn't reluctant, but I thought, well, I, it, it just wasn't, it was no longer my role. So I was like, right, I'll go. You know, that, that's, that was where I, I then had to step in and, and fill his uh, shoes. And then I, clearly I didn't look back after that because what happened, um, my first patrol was um, into Lashkar, which we would, we have when guys um, go through RIP processes, which is the relief in place when new units come in, we have their officers come in and we take them on different patrols around their AO. So that was the first, it was, you know, it was, there was not much, you know, not a great deal happening. And then we did, the Marja thing happened. It does. Well, let's talk through that fateful patrol, Chantel. And I mean, you are renowned as the first uh, female British soldier to kill an enemy combatant in close quarters. Tell me about that day. I've told this story so many times. I'm just trying to think of where to start. So we'd, we'd been we'd been doing our, our little um, our patrol and we were in our desert Liga and we'd, we'd taken a little bit of incoming, but it wasn't it wasn't sort of danger close. So we'd taken a few mortars and there were a few sort of telltale signs that things weren't brilliant. You know, we had a few... Um, cars going by in, in at distance but at high speed full of the usual um what we describe as fighting age males and they were just they were basically having a look at us because i was part of oc's tack you know i had the oc was in the front of my vehicle with his driver me his comms guy and an interpreter in the back and because there were two of us you know we, we had the option of doing top cover um from the top so and i opted to do that because i don't think you know some people will say well you're the medic you stay in the back well i'm not really adding any value back there sat with the interpreter because the vehicles that we were in you know they wouldn't sustain um any sort of sort of harsh you know the round they would they would be infiltrated pretty quickly so i didn't i just didn't really think i was adding any value just sat with my thumb up my ass in the back of a vehicle and then all, and also if something happens i want to see what's going on you know and i want a clear picture of the if, if i'm the medic in charge of that battle space i.e medically i need to know what's happening and then and again i think because of the courses that i'd done tactically i was very aware of of those things, you know, and it's so, and how important it is. So that day, we were then told part of the company went back. So we then went, obviously, our numbers lowered again, and we were then told to go into Marja, and, and we needed to go into the district centre. So the stuff that we'd taken before, we just thought it was almost like a warning, as if to say, yeah, you know, we know you're here, don't come sort of any closer, and and that's like a red rag to a bull, isn't it? Because you know, if, if you're getting sort of um, orders from higher, the things that were going on up country. That was what was deciding our fate. So in order for the a mission to succeed, we were then being pushed into different areas. So all of that was good. Um, and then we, we then got pushed into Marja. And then slowly but surely, we started to patrol in our vehicles, stopping every so often at vulnerable points for guys to get out and you know debus and check with the, do our normal up bomber drills, which is check vulnerable points for IEDs and stuff. And it wasn't long, you know, the first IEDs found. So that's then... And that's a, that's a strange feeling, you know, to know, to find IEDs is always a, a good option. But it's just, when you just see the how easy it is not to find them because they're, they're so well hidden, it's like the day would have gone very differently had we not have found that ID. Just through luck. Yeah, yeah, just through luck and just through someone, you know, um, just yeah, spotting something that's out of the ordinary. And, that, and that's, again, it's a, that can be a gift within itself. It's, it's certainly a gift for the, the patrol. I was very aware of the time. It was getting really hot, you know, coming up to midday. And again, there was a, and like you said earlier about details, I remember details. So I always remember like washing on lines and, and I was always like amazed in Afghan how people keep their whites so white. And is that, that might be me being a girl, but how can you, how is it possible amongst all that dust and shite that all of a sudden people are still managing to cut around in this really white kit. Anyway, so um, but unfortunately you can't get close enough to the women to ask. But um, So yeah, you're just very aware of things that are going on and, and sounds and smells, smelling food because it's coming up to lunchtime. That amazing smell of bread again. 
and like and bread's like everyone's demon isn't it but it's like the the nicest thing in the world and this i guess it's like comfort food so then we get um we're sort of crossing the threshold of getting in there and we we sort of you, you know it, if you've ever been to afghanistan you you get when you commit when you um commit to a route it's very hard to to uncommit because generally you're going through like narrow channels or or if you're on the side of a canal you know you, there's no really there's nowhere to go so you have to when it's on it's on so when you've committed that's it you know regardless of what is happening you're committed to that route and you have to sort of then plan for and and again my my brain's then sort of thinking about what if you get hit here what what's going to happen you know and so you do you go through the, these little plans and options so kev and i all the while he's my um other guy on top cover and we're always messing around as, as soldiers do you know cracking jokes and just generally fucking around and and I think that's just what soldiers do because you're still concentrating on what you're doing. But in order to get over that that waiting period, that the calm before the storm, I think it's, it's something that soldiers do just to get themselves out of feeling sick. Because I was very aware that I thought, right, if something's going to happen, I want it to happen because at the minute I feel physically sick. That apprehension being, you know, what because you're in this sort of really eerie time and space where we were going relatively slow, and then we start to see, you know, villagers start to run away from their homes which is not a good sign so it's like right well so so we're going through these crossing these little thresholds of right everyone being really sort of switched on something's going to happen when's it going to happen and who's getting hit first because and that's the unfortunate like the real life scenario that generally someone's getting hit first because it's not a case of the, if people start firing war, warning shots we'd already had the warning shots in the mortifier so it's it's right who's getting hit first and what are we getting hit with and then obviously Kev sort of, again, with us messing around still to get over that that nervousness is saying, you know, asking me to put a bet on of what we're going to get hit with first. I mean, only a jock could come out with that. <laughs> so we commit to the canal track and like all hell sort of breaks loose. And it's it just all, all I can say that that initial phase is just the sound is is deafening. And again, when um, when people think it's quite as easy as it goes off and your reactions are super quick. Yeah, they are super quick, but you, your body still reacts to what's happening. So, you know, whether it's thunderous sound, smoke, you can react like in your own little space, but until you actually get eyes on things, eyes on enemy or, or the general direction of from which they're firing, you have to, you have to still maintain control, you know, of, of your little space. And yeah. And that, so that initial phase was our instinct is to take cover. Because we've got cover, we've got that. And although it's not the best cover, I mean, I could have been stood behind a, a sofa and it would have still felt like cover, even though it's not. Because that's what's that's what something that looks like a solid object feels like. So it doesn't matter whether does does that make sense? Oh, it's um, psychological reassurance, even though yeah. the cushions are going to do nothing to <laughs> yeah. stop. But that's psychologically. So we take cover, and this is all happening like super quick, like split second stuff. And, I, you know, I was just very aware of um, rounds pinging off our vehicle. And, and I, I can't, you could never, you couldn't see the rounds pinging, but you could see something in the air. And it was almost like little, the only way I can describe it is as if it was like little zip, um, you know, it's like the weird little flies, but you, ca- you can't see them. But you can almost just see... Their impression on the air. Yeah. And it's, it's a strange thing. So, so I just became very aware very quickly that we, we were taking rounds and that... Like I could see what I thought was, you know, whether I was wrong in imagining it, it doesn't matter because the outcome was good. But I, I, I just thought that's coming from my side. And having said that, Kev, Kev's side was the canal side anyway. So my side was where all the, the little compound houses were and, you know, the, the sort of vegetation for the small amount that was there. And, if, you know, and, and again, tactically, this isn't because I was, you know, brave or anything. I just obviously popped back up, did what any other soldier would do is just your reaction to effective enemy fire, which is generally to take cover and then assess and, and, and you know, for want of a better phrase, like neutralise the threat, that my, the threat to me and my immediate um, space. And that's what happened. So I popped back up very quickly. And it, again, just by the your own sort of scanning method, got, got eyes on the, the shooter that was engaging us. And it, that, that happened sort of real quick. Seven rounds later, which I obviously got a bit of a, a grilling for. Although I don't mind saying this, like seven, it was five, five, six. And generally, like five, five, six, unless you're lucky enough with a headshot, that wouldn't stop someone automatically. It depends on where you, you, know, you shoot them. We were always taught that the five, five, six, unless it's in a... A particular style, you know, is generally designed to maim and not kill because it's better to take 
two or three out of the out of the um, battle than just one. I mean, it, obviously, it's very different from a an AK. I think it's also very different to a judge seven rounds. Yeah. You know, when you're writing that at a desk, as opposed to actually being fired upon. I didn't mind it because I thought it was funny, and it's like, well, oh well, you know, if it's seven rounds. And and the interesting thing about that is, is when we deployed to Iraq, you know, and I speak about this to friends often, is that this is how poor a show. Um, this is what these kind of thought of medics at the time is that I deployed with less rounds than that when I crossed the line of departure into Iraq, and it took me seven to kill somebody. So I kind of have done that math in my head and thought, hmm, that could have been interesting. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, I neutralised the threat. And then, um, you know, and as, as quick as that happened, that seems like a really a long sort of period of time. But it wasn't because at that, at that stage, that's what everyone else was doing. They were reacting to effective enemy fire. So we and it turned out that we were be, being engaged from the, the rear and the left side. So it was like just like an L-shaped ambush. But again, I'm so grateful for the, the tactical stuff I'd done pre that tour because I knew, you know, and I was very very like in tune with what what my role was within that company so what happened we took we took a casualty then that's no shock to anybody the oc shouting through the back to me you know santi we got a casualty in the rear vehicle okay i, I jump out the back door to run with him down the line of um, vehicles and we get halfway he tells me to turn around because um someone's dealing with a casualty in that vehicle which is always a gift but it's not such a gift when you're running with your kit and in the heat and you know dealing with all the other stuff but again that's how quick things happen and move on. And then it was our role to get off the X, if you like. And by that stage, I think, you know, we'd put enough um, firepower down to to contain what was happening. You know, we were we were we then got the the upper hand. So, but if I have to re- sort of reflect on that moment, I just think, well, you know, I would never do things any differently. And and if it, and if it if I added value as opposed to subtracting, it, I'm happy. After the contact wraps up, was the significance of what you'd done realised or remarked upon at the time? Yeah, like Kev was, Kev was laughing because we because then laughing. it went into that crazy. Yeah, because we go into that crazy. It's almost like quite childish when you survive contact. I think everyone has a bit of a giggle. Oh, you release nervous laughter. And... Yeah, it's like a bit. You know, then it becomes quite hysterical. I remember Kev laughing at me because because I was in and out of the vehicle. I then I was struggling to breathe because it was so hot. And I was just like, fuck it, you know, because if you think of the way you're adrenaline sort of rushing around the place, he was he was cracked up and he was laughing at the state of me saying, <laughs> and so I'm saying, right, OK, because I knew that my job hadn't finished because we had a casualty to deal with. So we were just, yeah, so he was sort of messing around. I, I didn't know, I don't mind saying I didn't really count the rounds. I just, I knew I hadn't fired a full mag. So I just, it was a case of sort my admin out, you know, do those those little bits that you would do after a contact and then wait for instruction to deal with this casualty and then you know i guess it, it wasn't really remarked upon properly until we got back to um lashkagar because everyone was we everyone had a job to do and how did that affect the rest of your tour i think you know trust trust levels especially not not just from that but from the the way that we dealt with the casualty and got him airlifted pretty quickly because he was quite seriously injured chucky he was the, the guy man in the 50 cal and he took around to the abdomen and i remember thinking um like he, it was in the abdomen, but it was high. And I, I remember saying to the OC, you know, that's he's going to be okay. But I'm just I'm very aware that that may have that may turn into a chest chest wound. You know, we need to be sort of just be cognizant that that's he's he's good to go. But let's wait and see what what comes back. And he, and he had he he then um, developed because um, it was high and he he clipped the uh, the lining of one of his lungs. So he he survived thankfully. But that then uh, I think the trust that I between myself. Um, and the command elements was was super high then. So when it came to going to Nadi Ali, which was obviously the worst portion of our time, I'd, you know, we were we were like, um, I, I had a brilliant a brilliant tour, and I'd, there was never I didn't ever feel questioned. I didn't ever feel that I didn't belong there, or people really sort of valued our service. And 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 even as you know, I, I wasn't the only female there. There was myself, Abby, and Jenny, and in Nadi Ali, and we had the, exactly the same for those for those two. You know, we were sort of embraced as part of that company. And it was, and like I've said before, that that was probably the pinnacle of my career to have that level of trust from you know, an, an infantry fighting company commander and then the guys that you were looking after. Yeah, it was quite it was quite something. When you're on the plane heading home at the end of that deployment. How did you feel about the tour? And did you know it was going to be your last one? Yeah, I did. Because, um, again, me and my other half at the time, we said, uh, I didn't feel I could go any further. You know, I, and and after that tour, I was I picked up promotion. I was recommended to go and 
be a TL for one of our SF med teams, which again would have been a huge, it was a huge honour to be recommended for that role. But I'd, I would never have been as kinetic. And I, I never, I'm not saying that I should have been, but I would never have had the role that I did in Helmand. So I knew for me that that was going to be the very best as like as a, as a medic would it would get for me. And I guess I just wanted to, because you either you pick and choose then. So so I'd, I'd picked up promotion for staff sergeant. I would have gone into a more administrative role because obviously as you go up the ranks as a medic, you, that's what happens. I, I was told that to go back to a training depot as a company sergeant major and do all those good things. But I don't know. Yeah, I wanted to, I, I wasn't finished. I didn't feel like I was finished and I really enjoyed, you know, hostile environments. I felt like um, I was good at it. I was good at being a medic in that environment. And and maybe because I'd missed out um, the junior role and I'd done it as a sergeant, yeah, maybe I maybe I was being greedy for hostile environment. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. You do discharge, and uh, since then, you know, you've gone into the private sector, and we could do a whole podcast on all the stuff you've been doing, leaving aside the security and secrecy issues. But I did want to give a brief shout out to the fact that you worked with the Australian ambassador in Iraq. Yeah, I did four years with um, the Aussie Ambo. She was amazing, and um, you know, and and I, funnily enough, I'd worked with guys. Um, Robbie, he was ex um, army medic, and we were when I left the army, we both deployed to Afghanistan working for DOS and DOD, the Americans, and we deployed together. So we were there in the same role. And then then we'd go and work together on the same team, the ambassadors team. So that was pretty cool. And this is with Lyndall Sachs. Yeah. She was, and she was amazing. You know, she was, uh, it, it was quite, quite sad really, because her, for her tenure, that four years, we would travel the, the width and breadth of Iraq. You know, we were all over the place and she was achieving an awful lot. And then and then ISIS happened. So it was almost like uh, the stuff that we were doing, you, God, you just give that a year later, there's, there's no way you could have done that stuff. So, uh, you know, again, it was a, a privileged position to be the lead medic on her team. I mean, that was, and again, you, again, you're getting to know other, you're getting to know other militaries and you do almost have to prove your worth again. And that's, that's a, another thing, regardless of what you've done. I feel like every team that you come, come onto, even now, considering I, you know, I've done an awful lot now, you still have to prove yourself. Sometimes that can be quite frustrating, especially if you're proving yourself to a nobber, you know, someone who, to be honest, you'd think, well, how about I look at your CV first? But it's no bad thing because, you you know, I always say you're only as good as your last fuck up. So, <laughs> yeah, so that was a great time. I've been doing an awful lot since. And I, I don't think, you know, my story's not really ended yet. So I'm not really ready to. No, I think we're just covering uh, chapter one and then we can, um, we'll have to chat another time on chapter two. Yeah, Speaking of chapters, I've alluded to it a couple of times. You have written a memoir of your time in Afghanistan. Yeah, and it was um, that was quite a cathartic exercise, you know. And I did it all from I didn't keep notes, I didn't take any notes on any tour. So um, yeah, that was just I just I wrote it. I made sure it got MOD clearance. I've got really good responses from the book because I think um, initially, you know, I, I struggled to get that book published because. Apparently, you know, people didn't want to read a, a war story by a woman, but I think they failed to see that actually I wrote it as a soldier. You know, the only thing that says that that's a woman is my name. So, so if, if and that, and that's the thing, if 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 my story is not worthy as a soldier, then I think that's a you know a, quite a poor reflection on society because every soldier's story is worthy of of being heard. When and how did your story first really break and gain notoriety? Oh God. Right, so this, that was a funny thing. It was in a book. Um, Sam Carley wrote a book. He's the editor for security editor for Sky News for the longest time, and then he went to CNN. But he wrote a book, and I was in it. And then, you know, I guess no one really picked up the story, but it was there. And then I wrote my book, and I was in I was in Baghdad at the time. And then all of a sudden, do you know? And I never expected this at, at, at all because it because it had already been in a book. Why would I expect it to go crazy? Because it was already out there, so it didn't. I didn't think well anything of it. And then the next thing, you know, I was I got five pages in the mail. I was in every other paper the following day. I was on the news. I was, you know, it was, and I thought, fuck, because I was working, <laughs> and I was actually at the time, you know, working in Baghdad. And I was thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm gonna get, this isn't good because I just wasn't expecting it to get that crazy. And it got, in fact, what's one of, it was in one of your papers, one of the Adelaide papers, I think. And then it was, it was in, it got as far as Thailand. It was in the, a section of the New York Times. So anyway, so clearly I wasn't expecting that. And at the time, there were, although there were pictures available of me, they were all military. And I, and I tend to look quite different. People wouldn't, you wouldn't see me in the street and think that's that girl. I look different, which is a good thing. So. 
yeah, so I, I didn't mind talking on the radio. That doesn't mean I've got a face for radio. <laughs> this is what everyone, everyone was saying. But yeah, so I, I did a lot of radio interviews just to, you know, talk about the, the incident and stuff. And that was it. And then I just sort of just let, let it go. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go on the telly until the end, the time that I went on the telly was when Sean Bean asked me to do an, uh, a documentary. I thought, well, he's too cool not to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, God, if I'd, have, if I'd have said no, that would be a bit silly. And plus it was a, it was relative. So it was about the Battle of Waterloo and how medicine had it changed much. And I said, not really. You know, the basics of combat medicine done well, that's what really saves lives. And it's, and during that initial phase, you know, and then for the skill of the surgeons, if you get complications, I mean, they're like a worth their weight in gold. So, so I think as a generally combat medicines come along so such a long way, but the, as I said, the basics are still when they're done well, they're the, they're the best sort of lifesavers in my opinion. And Chantal, to anyone listening, man or woman who are aspiring perhaps to serve on the front lines, what advice do you have for them? Don't let where you come from hold you back. You know, and whether that's you're from a darker side or where you, whether you're from a privileged background, you know, go in and, and, and just enjoy what the, the military gives you. Because you know what? You, you don't realise what you get from the military until much later. Like I, I still am happy that the, the sort of person that I've become, and that's, you know, by and large by a lot of my military service, is it's still, I've been out for nearly 10 years and I'm still very much, if I've, in fact, I'm probably more formidable because I've taken what they've given me and then I've just added all these other things to it. And I'm grateful and I'm grateful for, I'm even grateful for the time that I've spent on operations, you know, because it's, it's, it's almost like um, you go to a place that some people will never, never see and they'll, they'll see it on TV. There's no better feeling in the world than feeling as needed as you do in a tight unit. You know, the way that I felt when, you know, when we had bad situations and you've got guys, men and women looking at you and they want you to make the right decision for them. And you do. And, and that trust you for that split second, you know, there's no better feeling in the world. And I put that to maybe, you know, the way that Olympians feel when they're up on the, the podium getting their gold medal. It must be that same feeling of pride that you have because it's almost, you know, I'll always stand for our national anthem. I'll respect, like, you know, even our allies. Now, I go on massively about our Five Eye Alliance, which is, a, you know, us, the Americans, you guys, New Zealand and Canada. You know, we had this affiliation from the end of World War II. And I, I st- still strongly believe that. So if, if you want if you want to have a strong sort of ethical presence in it and, and feel like you're, you're worthy of that, then yeah, but by all means sign up. I don't think it's something that you could ever, I would never look back. There's no negativity from me. You know, even at the, the times where the dark times They've been worth it. Okay, Chantel, let's do the social media plugs. Where can people find you? Oh, right, yeah. So on Instagram, I have like um, Mission Critical is my military page, so where I push lots of the podcasting stuff out. And then Alternate RV is my my sort of page. I'm not one for really, I don't post meals and shit like that. I don't, I haven't got any weird fitness routine that I'm trying to sell. You know, I'm, I'm in my 40s now, so I'm just quite happy to be able to still function and still throw around a few kettlebells. Um, so yeah, Alternate RV on Instagram. I've got my Facebook page, which is Battleworn. And yeah, I mean, I get messages from people all over the world for advice and stuff, and I'm always happy to answer. You know, if people have questions, then yeah, feel free. Don't, please don't send me gruesome pictures of yourself. Because uh, I will hunt you down. <laughs> and alternate RV is spelled A-L-T-E-R-N, numeral eight RV. And they can also sometimes hear you co-host the Global Recon podcast, I should mention. Yeah, that's, yeah and that's always it's quite, that's quite therapeutic. And so, do you know, I always actually enjoy listening. I, you'll notice in this podcast, I struggle to tell my own story, but I quite like listening to others. Because everyone else is like, I mean, I had Mark Donaldson on there and he was just the most humble like humble of beings what a, what a guy you know just I, I i've been on that podcast a couple of times nearly crying which is a just because you hear people you just think how fucking how the how have you ended up where you've ended up you know but amazing yeah so again just keeping the alliance strong well Chantel, it's been fantastic speaking with you today thank you for your time no thank you thank you that was my conversation with Chantel taylor Look her up online and search for Battleworn, the memoir of a combat medic in Afghanistan, to get the full story of Chantel's time in the line of fire. If you're just discovering us, we have a conversation with an Australian war veteran out every Tuesday. We also do bonus episodes like this conversation with Chantel on Fridays. Subscribe to get all content. 
If you enjoyed this episode, then help us out by getting it out there to more people. Post the link on your social media and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. It only takes a moment and it really helps other people find the show. And don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at LOTLpod on Twitter and at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget...